And there's so much to celebrate and rejoice about and to really um, thank God for this week. We, we've already heard we had a, a wedding yesterday. Uh, we had the gathering. I hope you're all connected online, whether you alone or with your comms. And it was wonderful to, to, for the whole church to be able to get together, even if part of it was virtual, and, and praying so many new elders and deacons across Josh Jen and get apostolic input from Brad. It was an incredible evening. And then this weekend, we had the 412 Healing Equip, uh, a time of uh, training and equipping and activation of healing gifts. Who was there? Guys were there? That's wonderful. And, and it really was uh, an amazing time. Has anybody got anything they want to share about the time, just quickly? Come on, share something. Because I can share, but yeah, Tammy. Thanks, Mike. Um, <laughs> no, I won't. No, it was just incredible to be there. And just um, I feel like learning so much about the practical side of healing. And yeah, just for me, the big thing that stood out was um, just even um, yeah, if you, if you pray for somebody and if you want to, um, if somebody comes to you for healing, um, the faith that they need to have as well. Um, and that side of it for healing. And yeah, it was just an awesome opportunity for us to uh, pray for quite a few people. Um, Lee was there, which was really, really awesome. And yeah, I'm really trusting for miracles for those guys. Um, to be there, to be in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and just to, yeah, we are expecting massive breakthrough um, in healing to come. Absolutely. I think not just be, we're not expecting healing just because we had a healing equipped time. We had a healing equipped time because there's a real sense that God wants to, to really bring us into a season of the supernatural. And we know that churches go through seasons where we see more or we see less, but we should never see none. You know, the supernatural should be part of what we're about. And I'm trusting, even today, that uh, people who have uh, maybe need for healing or need for supernatural breakthrough, we're, the people that have, uh, are trusting for God to use them in those gifts, we're going we're gonna to make use of them. Um, because we're a priesthood of all believers. And God has given gifts to each of us. And he's given a mandate on each of us to be a priest before the Lord. And a priest, what is the job of a priest? It's to worship God, but it's also to intercede and minister to others. And so uh, we're going to worship and we're going to glorify God and we're going to praise God just now. But hopefully we'll have an opportunity also to intercede for and minister to one another as well and see God come. So this all seems to be coming. It's almost as though God speaks to us. Who would have thought? <laughs> the, the things, there seems to be a vein or a river flowing that we're just jumping into, which is much better than trying to create life. It's Find where life is flowing and jump into it. So even in the prayer meeting, some of the things that were shared uh, are what I've got here. Um, and it all lines up with, as, a, as an eldership team, we've been feeling for a while, uh, just to focus for a season on prayer and praise, on worship, on a lifestyle of worship, on an attitude of worship, and the practical outworking of what that means. And so I'm not saying we're doing a series. I'm just saying for the next little while, unless the river moves again. We're just going to prioritize and focus on what it means corporately 
and individually to live lives of prayer and of praise. And one of the, the central scriptures we want to use uh, is, is around uh, 1 Chronicles 16, where the ark is being brought back by David. And it says, he appointed, so this is uh, 1 Chronicles 16 from verse 4, he appointed some of the Levites, that's the priests, as ministers before the ark of the Lord. And the ark of the Lord represents the presence of God. Okay? And not just the, it's the presence of God, but we also note, if you've watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> that where the presence of God was, the power of God was also. And so the ark was, was something of, of a return of the presence of God back to its proper place amongst the people. God, God had never disappeared but that very special sign of his presence had been forfeited by the people because of disobedience and idolatry. And when David comes, he says, no, it's about time we restored this. And he brought it back to the very center of the life of Israel, very, to the very center of the life of the, of, of, of the church, because Israel represents the church. And so he appointed the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And then he mentions some of the people. We can skip over that so I don't have to pronounce it all. And then David sings a song of thanks. So uh, we're going to ask uh, Grant, who's our leader, he's going to sing a song of thanks over it. <laughs> when, when, when he needs us to leave, we'll get him to... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He says, oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, and which he confirmed to us through the new covenant. I added that bit, okay? But just so we understand why this is relevant to us. When you were few in number, I've just skipped a bit, but when you were of little account, just travelers in the land, wandering from nation to nation, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Have you ever read that verse in this context? We've often heard it used in the context of leadership. Don't touch the Lord's anointed as though, this is, no, this is the Lord saying to other people, do not touch my anointed ones. He's jealous over us, He's protective over us. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. 
Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. And he just goes on. And it's, it's a continual and repetitive thing. And when the Bible repeats something, it isn't because God doesn't know what it's saying. It's to emphasize it so that we pay attention. And this song of David, if you go through it, is continually saying, praise God and tell people about him. Praise God and tell people about him. Why? Because he took you from nothing and made you something. Why? Because he created the heavens and the earth. Why? Because he's great. Why? Because he's good. We have no shortage of reasons to praise God and to tell people about him. How many reasons do we need? I think it's Matt Redman who talks about 10,000 reasons, right? (laughs) 10,000 reasons for my heart to find to worship God and tell people about him. And so I want to speak about us being the Levites, us being the priests, us being the ministers of God to one another and to a lost and broken and dying generation. And the title of my preach, I don't often give my preachers titles, but the title of this preach is, You Are Peculiar. You are peculiar. And the reason for that is in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, if you read it in the King James Version, the King James Version says, Ye are a chosen generation, Ye, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And there, Peter's writing, that's the King James Version, so the language is a bit old-fashioned. The modern translation says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's who you are. And all of that is echoing back to Deuteronomy, where in Deuteronomy, you can read it in in Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, where God is making covenant with Israel. And to Israel, he says, you are a holy people unto God. And the Lord, in the King James Version, hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself. So you are peculiar. And Peter is echoing this. He's saying that covenant God made with Israel is the same as the covenant to us. I will be your God. You will be my people. I have chosen you. And the word peculiar has different meanings. The definitions of peculiar can mean different to what is normal or what is expected. We should be different to what the world expects. Okay? In the sense of, The world thinks Christians are boring, miserable, judgmental. Yeah? We've got to be different to that. The world expects Christians to not know how to have fun because God is the fun killer who tells you don't smoke, don't drink, don't have sex, don't do drugs, don't. It's like you've got to not have fun. Fun is evil. No. 
We've got to be different to what's been expected. We should be the most fun people on the planet. Because we've got more reason to be happy than anybody else. And we've got a life in us that nobody else has got. Drugs may make you happy for a while and then make you miserable and kill you. That's the truth. Drugs do make you happy for a while, otherwise people wouldn't do them. And they're expensive. Are you, are you telling us that from experience, Grant? What's, what's the going rate? <laughs> but God brings a joy without the hangover, without the downer, without the negative aspects, and without having to pay him. We should have a joy and a sense of fun that is greater than anybody else. So peculiar is different or what is normal. It can also mean particular or special. You are special. And by that I mean special, not special. (laughs) And it also means strange. The world actually should find us strange. What are you doing here on a lovely, sunny Sunday afternoon? (laughs) Aren't you crazy? Isn't that strange? When there's so many fun things you can be doing. There's so many other things to do with our time. Why hang out with these weirdos? You're strange. Why Why give 10% of your income to the church? That is just mad. If people don't think you're strange, you're doing it wrong. Because our values are not the values of the world. And so what what sometimes confuses me is people come to church, and this is a challenge for us for later. And in worship, we don't want to put our hands up because what will people think? We don't want to dance because what will people think? You know, the very fact that you hear people already think you're, you're a lunatic and a loser. <laughs> you're already there. So go for it all the way. <laughs> like, don't be half a loser. If you're going to be a loser, be a full-on loser. <laughs> if you're going to be a weirdo, be a weirdo on a mission. We are. Our values are different. Our reason for living is different. Our actions are different and our language are different, or at least they should be, because we're a peculiar people. We are a chosen people and we are a royal priesthood. We are priests. We have been chosen and holy, holy has a, It has a component of morality to it, but primarily the word holy means you've been set apart for a purpose. Now, one of the things in my journey when I I stepped back from eldership for a while, um, well-meaning people would often sit down with me for coffee and say, Mike, you mustn't find your identity in being an elder, you know? And that's true, and I didn't. You know, eldership for me is... It's something I do, it's a description, it's not a title, it's, it's not what I get value out of, it's not, it's not my identity. I'm not Elder Mike, I'm Mike who happens to be an elder. But during the journey, one thing I did realize is this. For example, this is a phone. 
is valuable if you can make calls with it and if you can do the internet with it, whatever it is. It was, if it cannot function, it loses its value. Okay? Now, we have value because Jesus died for us, but we also have value and worth when we do that for which we were created. If we cannot do that, for that and fulfill that purpose for which we were created, in many ways, and this is an extreme statement, but we become worthless. So the question each of us has got to answer is, why was I created? What is my purpose? And can I say, primarily your purpose isn't to be uh, a good salesman or a good teacher or even a good parent. That might be an aspect of faithfulness that God requires. But your purpose, your overarching purpose, and your primary reason for still being an oxygen thief <laughs> is to glorify God. That's, that's why we exist. Man was created to display God's glory to the universe. And when Adam and Eve sinned, there's many reasons why God's judgment came. But one of the reasons that was so terrible is sin changed man and distorted that image. And man, in his sinfulness, couldn't truly reflect the nature of God anymore. But through Christ, through Christ, who died for us, and when we are hidden in Christ, which is the language of Ephesians, we can again display something of the glory of God to the, to the world, to the universe, to those who don't know him yet. And to each other. Because one of the real privileges of meeting together corporately and worshipping corporately is that when I see Hannes going for it fully 110% in worship, he displays to me, who already knows God, something of the nature of worship. And I can imitate those around me. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. All of us are influencing those around us. We all are, whether you like it or not. The only question is, are you influencing people into more or less? So that's why we exist. We exist as priests. We exist to be worshippers. We exist to magnify the name of God. We exist, like the Levites, to be those who carry the presence of God into its rightful place. By the way, do you know why the Levites were chosen to be the priests? It's a scary story. This is why the Levites were chosen to be the priests. When Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, the Israelites got tired of waiting, and they went to Aaron and said, Make us a golden calf. And they began to worship the golden calf as an idol. They threw off all kinds of restraint and just became incredibly immoral. And when Moses came down from the mountain with God's commands, he saw this, and he knew that the discipline and the judgment of God had to come on the camp. And he said, Who's with me? Who will be with me to bring judgment to the camp? And the Levites said, we will. And they went through the camp with their swords and killed people. They exercised God's judgment. Now, I'm not saying you're Levites because you're murderous psychopaths. I'm saying 
They were chosen as Levites because they said this, the holiness in the name of God and the reputation of God far outweighs the considerations I have for other people. That's why they were chosen as priests, because that is a necessary qualification of a priest to be a God-pleaser, not a man-pleaser. So we are the Levites. We've been chosen. And that's the language of Jesus when he says, whoever, hates his, whoever doesn't hate his mother, father, brother, sister is not worthy of me. He's not talking about being hateful. He's saying, your desire and passion and love for God must be so overwhelming that it overrides any consideration of anything else. Of course, then, the way we live according to that is we will not abuse anybody because we will reflect Jesus. But that's the calling of Jesus. And we're called to be priests. But what does this life look like? What is the life of a priest? What is the life of praise and of prayer? Three points. One, it's a God-centered life, not a me-centered life. I've shared this before, but some people have a theology, other people have a meology. And the difference is this. Dogs have a theology, cats have a meology. <laughs> right? So dog is, thinks this way. Dog says, You give me a home, you feed me, you look after me and you love me, you must be my owner. A cat thinks this way, you feed me, you look after me, you stroke me, you give me a home, I must be a cat. (laughs) And subtly, unfortunately, in many churches around the world, in many worship songs, there's this meology that permeates that God does these things because I'm so worthy. And I'm at the center of my theology. A lot of liberal theology out there and and kind of watered down and and excuse for sin is a man. How can God do that to man? How can God? God can do whatever he likes to man because he's God and we are creatures of the dust. Jesus didn't die for you because you were valuable. He died for you when you were worthless, when you were an enemy of God, worthy of damnation. That you carry worth now is simply because he died for you and put his spirit in you. We are treasure within earthly vessels, cracked pots. Yes, you are all cracked pots. (laughs) But you contain the glory of God. And if you are born again, I want to say this, not to... Not to puff up your ego or, as Will likes to say, throw sugar to the birds. I'm saying this so we understand the beauty of what Jesus has done, that even the most unworthy of us, if you are in Christ, you may feel, I have no right to come into the presence of God. I've sinned this week. I've neglected God this week. I've done... Remember this. No matter how cracked the jar is, it contains treasure of eternal worth. So we need to have a theology. We need to focus on him, not ourselves. Not pride, not selfishness. My career, my kids, my sport are all subservient to him. Even good things can be idols. Ministry can be an idol. It's not about me, it's about him. Matthew 6 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In Haggai, he says, if you build my house, I'll build yours. Are we a people who want to build his house first? I remember being approached by the bosses of the company I worked for before I was in full-time ministry. And they said, we want to make you a director. Would have been a lot of money. I said, I can't. They said, why not? I said, you want to make me a director to tie me in to the company. You want to, you want to ensure my long-term loyalty. But I can't give you that because I know what God has called me to in life, and it's something else. That doesn't mean being a director of a company is a sin, by the way. It means it was for me. Because the way I had to seek the kingdom was for, first was to say no. For you, it might be to say yes. But are you seeking the kingdom first? Because it's no good if our prayer and our worship is bolted on to the side of our lives. David brought the, the ark back to, to the center of Israel because it had been kept in some house on the outskirts. And he said, that is not the right place. The presence of God should not be on the outskirts. It should not be an addition. It should not be a life belt to cling on in emergencies. So we need to focus on him. It needs to be God-centered. We need to focus on him and not on others. I used to say this, uh, how in, in the way people talk. A gossip talks about other people. A bore talks about himself. And a brilliant conversationalist talks about you. <laughs> yeah? Who are we talking about? Whose name is on our lips? Whose opinions do we value? And I'm not saying devalue every person's opinion. When people say, I don't care what people think, I say, liar, we all care what people think. The question is this, does your care for what people think override your consideration of what God thinks? Do you live for his pleasure and his approval or people's? Now, one of the ways that this works in me is I have a natural tendency, some of you may not have noticed this, to be introverted. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Lock my, it's like lockdown came, COVID came, and I think, thank you, Jesus. This is the best thing ever. It's my natural selfish tendency. And growing up, in some ways, I trained myself to be even more introverted. It became almost even like a survival mechanism at times. And I've had to realize in recent years that whilst that's my natural tendency and that's where I'm comfortable, that's not the way God wants me to be. And even shyness and introversion, it can be about our opinions of other people rather than I will walk in God's expectations of me. Comparison. Comparison will always kill you. Comparison is when you're looking at others instead of Jesus. Compare yourself to Jesus. That's a good one. Don't compare yourself to other people. It will always end in death. Because if you compare yourself to others, you'll either think you're better than them or worse than them. If your behavior is shaped by other people's opinions, it leads to death. This was mentioned in the prayer meeting, and many of us know the story. 
when David danced before the ark of the Lord, and he wasn't naked, the old, old versions say he, was, he, took, he took off his outer garments, so he had his underwear on, basically. And he danced before the Lord with all his might, jumping and spinning around. And when he got home, his wife said to him, oh, you've just embarrassed yourself. You, you, just, you just humiliated yourself in front of the people. And David's response was, he says two things, actually. He says, one, if you think you've seen undignified, you ain't seen nothing yet. And the other, he says, no, you're wrong. Because the people there that truly love God, the maidservants, the lowliest about, uh, among the people, didn't see me as less. Actually, you're wrong. I didn't humiliate myself. If I did, I don't care because God's the only. But actually, in doing something you thought was humiliating, actually, I wasn't humiliated at all. And here's a little secret for us. When you're worshipping and you're wondering, can I put my hands up, what will people think? Or can I dance, what will people think? Let me give you a simple answer. People won't think anything because nobody's looking at you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like, what will people think? Uh, they've not even noticed. <laughs> but here's the, here's the kicker. God's judgment comes on the wife. And what happens? What's the judgment? Because there's many ways God can judge. You know, in, in, in Scripture, sometimes people, people drop dead or get leprosy or whatever, or the earth swallow, swallows them. In this case, she became barren. And I think God is pointing a very clear picture to us there that if we allow the opinions of others to determine our praise and our prayer, there will be a barrenness. If the limit of our lifestyle of prayer and praise is determined by other people, we will be in a place of barrenness. If you want fruitfulness, if you want reproduction, please him, the giver of life. And then, so we focus on him, not ourselves. We focus on him, not others. We focus on him, not our circumstances. Wonderful testimony from Pierre. Uh, these are my circumstances. I'm not ignoring them. I'm not oblivious. I'm not ignorant. I'm just choosing to focus elsewhere. Chatting to Will, um, Juliet's dad, yesterday. And for those of you who don't know, uh, he had a diagnosis of, of terminal cancer. They've given him a matter of months to live. I said, how are you doing? He said, ah, this thing just barks in my ear sometimes. And I'm trusting God. I'd love another 13 years to minister. There's still so much to do. But you know what? I'm going to run as hard as I can with every day that I've got. And whether I've got a day, months, or years, I'm going to run hard. Because I'm not going to focus on my circumstances. I'm going to focus on Jesus and what he has for me. And we are trusting for a miracle that God will give him at least another 13. Maybe thir another 30, eh, Julia? <laughs> but even if he died, the same faith that we hold for his healing is the same faith by which we say he's died, but he's not dead. Because our faith is not 
and our praise and our worship is not determined by our circumstances. Scripture is full of this. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us, Rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. No exceptions. No footnotes. No asterisks. Terms and conditions do not apply. <laughs> Philippians 4.4, 4, which we heard earlier. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, when do I rejoice? But here's the thing about Paul. When he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he's saying, I can't do anything without the strength of Christ. But the context he's saying that is, I'm content in much or little, and I can Achieve that contentment and rejoicing because of Christ in me. It's not a self-generated effort. It's, a, it's an allowing of the Spirit to rise up and say, you know what? Regardless of my health, finances, relationships, regardless of any of that, I've got a assurance, certain hope. And I've got the treasure of Christ in these jars of clay. Romans 5, from 3 to 5, says, We glory in our sufferings. That sounds a bit sick and twisted, doesn't it? Not that he says, please bring on the pain, I enjoy pain. He's saying, no, we, glor glorify in, we glory in our sufferings because we who are in Christ understand our sufferings serve a purpose. Because suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character hope. And Scripture is full of that. Don't look at your circumstance because even the worst of circumstances are there to produce fruitfulness, to produce life. And he can work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose that we're called to? To glorify him. And how we respond to suffering can be just as powerful a testimony in our suffering as our testimony of healing. Don't, think about it for a second. If I was crippled and God pulled me out of a wheelchair, that would be a powerful testimony. But one of my heroes of the faith, Kiersey, that we befriended when we were leading um, the Durbanville congregation, in a wheelchair, uh, uh, arms of limited use, lost, lost the use of her legs in an accident. But she carries the testimony of Jesus because of how she carries herself whilst she is unable to walk. And that is just as powerful a testimony. How can you be so happy under these circumstances? Because of Jesus. And that's no less a miracle than getting out of a chair and walking. So don't think the only way I can bring a testimony and the only time I can praise God is when I see healing or breakthrough although we should testify and rejoice about those things. But in the meantime, I can still rejoice and give a testimony. Like Daniel's three friends said, when they were faced with the fire, we will not bow down to the ways of this world, for our God is able to deliver us, and he will, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, 
we will not bow down. So it's a, a God-centered life. It's a submitted life. James 4, 7, submit yourself to the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's a submission to God first. Luke 22, verse 42, Jesus says, please, if there's any way, take this cup from me. And if you're suffering, there's nothing wrong with praying that. Lord, please change my circumstances. Please give me a job. Please heal my sickness. Please restore my marriage. Please bring my kids back to, to faith. Please, whatever it may be that you're facing, there's nothing wrong with, with praying that God would take that cup from you as long as the next sentence is, and yet, not my will, but your will be done. And I will be obedient and submitted to you, whatever your will is for my life. And I will worship you, whatever you decide for my life. And I will say you are good regardless of circumstances. We need to live lives of continuous prayer and devotion that is submitted to God. Not just, I believe in quiet times. I don't believe prayer should be confined to quiet times. I believe in coming together and worshiping. I don't think this is the only time we should worship. But in Philippians 1, just I'm not going to read it now because I've been going on too long, like usual. You see, this, you've got to rejoice even when the preaching is long. But read Philippians 1 and Philippians 4. And the language is, I always pray all the time, continuously in all circumstances. He's model, Paul is modeling there something, not just how, how an apostle lives, but how a servant of Jesus Christ lives. So it's a God-centered life. It's a submitted life and it's a devotion, a devoted life. Acts 2.42, they were devoted to teaching, breaking bread. Fellowship, prayer. There was praise and worship. And the word for devotion there has different shades of meaning. One of the shades of meaning is they moved forward despite resistance. Or they persevered under pressure. Or they did it when it was inconvenient. They did it despite the funny looks that they would get. A life that's devoted... It's like this. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites came and took, took a, a city, God would sometimes say, don't plunder that for yourselves, but devote it to me. And what that meant was destroy it all. And devotion in that context meant to, to give it to God completely and irrevocably. A devoted life means, God, I've given my life to you, not a little bit, but completely, and I want to do it in a, such a way that I can never take it back. And we need to live de devoted lives. David in 2 Samuel 24, many of us know this story, but God's judgment has come upon Israel because of David's sin. And David wants to intercede. Again, there's a situation where God's judgments come and God's told it and he said, but if I pray and if I make an offering before God, maybe I can just sway God's heart and, the, and lessen the judgment. And so he finds this piece of land and, and, and the person says, you can have it for free. I'll give it to you. And David says, no, I will not offer a sacrifice that costs me nothing. And the question for us is, 
You know, tithing costs us. Coming to church costs us our time and, you know. But tonight as we're going to worship, what's the cost of you worshipping God the way he wants you to worship? It might cost you your reputation, your comfort, your preconceived ideas. It may cost you your own theology because you have a certain way of thinking that needs to break. It may be that you're tired. It may be that you're sick. It may be that you're grieving. But the greatest, most pleasing sacrifice to the Lord is one that has cost me something. Many years ago, Chantel fell pregnant. We announced it to the church and there was great rejoicing. And that week, we lost the baby. And the next Sunday, we had to get up and announce we'd lost the baby. We weren't feeling like rejoicing. We, we didn't feel particularly happy. The meeting started and worship started. And I'll always remember the first song. It was, you are good, you are good, and your love endures. And I'm stood there and I'm like, I don't feel right now the goodness of God. I kind of know it theoretically. I just don't feel it. And I was like, I've got a choice right now. I can respond to myself, to my flesh, to my own feelings, to my own emotions, to my own circumstances. Or in my pain, I can offer him a sacrifice and declare what I know to be true and here's the amazing thing. When we declare what we know to be true and we don't feel like it, how often our feelings come in alignment with the truth rather than our truth being distorted to fit our feelings. One of those two things will happen. Either the truth will be distorted in your mind to fit your feelings or your feelings will come in line with the truth. And sometimes it requires a sacrifice for that. Because priests do not exist for their own comfort. Priests exist for him and to minister to others. Worship is a lifestyle. Prayer is a lifestyle. We've often heard that. When we talk about uh, praise and worship, it's not just what happens corporately on a Sunday. But I want to say that for today. If we can't do it corporately, if I can't worship God with all I am when I'm surrounded by people who are encouraging me and, and gifted musicians, what hope have I got when I'm on my own and my singing sounds like a bucket rolling off a roof? <laughs> and so, yes, worship is a lifestyle. And worship and prayer is an attitude, but it's also an action. And today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to respond to Jesus. Today, today's the day. And we're going to go into a time of prayer and of praise and of worship. And I, I want to challenge each one of us to say, if I've heard the truth today, if Mike has been speaking the truth, is Mike, if Mike has been reflecting the heartbeat of Jesus, what is my responsibility? And our responsibility is to respond appropriately. And for some of you, that may mean moving from your seats and standing at the front. That might be a sacrifice of worship. 
For some of you, it may be to dance. For some of you, it might be to lift your hands for the first time. For some of you, it might be to bring a prophetic word or a prophetic song. For some of you, it might be mean following the Spirit and going prophesying over somebody or praying for somebody or, or stepping out in, uh, in, in a gift of healing or the supernatural. I don't know what it means to you, but I do know this. Every single person here is called to respond. And if you're here and you've never met Jesus, the way to respond is to say, Lord, Jesus, I don't know you but I'm opening up my heart to receive you if you will come. And here's the deal. If you do that, he will come. So whether you're responding to Jesus for the very first time or whether you've heard this message a hundred times before and you become jaded and cynical, tonight is the night to respond, shift our hearts and worship not in a manner with which I am comfortable, not worship in a manner with which I am familiar, not worship in a manner which maintains my dignity and reputation, but to respond to him sacrificially, completely, and passionately, because that is what we're called to do. Amen.